Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Folks, hello, and welcome back to the podcast. This week, I'm joined by Kaysen Short. Kaysen is a rice farmer, and he's the third generation to manage a farm and duck hunting club called Bill Byers Hunter Club that's located just north of me uh, in Hunter, Arkansas. That's in the uh, East Arkansas Delta there. Kaysen, someone that I've paid attention to for several years now. I've listened to quite a few podcasts that he's done uh, with some of the folks from Express Boats, as well as Jim Ronquest of R&T Calls, and some assorted uh, biologists, waterfowl biologists from the Mississippi Flyway. And I've gained a, uh, a ton of great scientifically based information about ducks and geese in the flyway that I do uh, most of my hunting in, which is the Mississippi Flyway here in Arkansas. Uh, He's also someone that I followed on social media, and I so appreciate uh, the amount of thought uh, and intent that he's putting into his waterfowling activities. It's something that's uh, sorely lacking in a lot of social media content surrounding duck hunting and goose hunting. And again, it's something I, I really appreciate. And it's a, it's a great uh, Instagram page to go to just to kind of pay attention to what's happening in this region as far as waterfowling. Uh, he's got a tremendous amount of information and experience with speckle belly geese, which, as you know, I'm fascinated with. Uh, and he's also kind of served for a long time as a, a hub of scientific uh, access to ducks and geese for biologists that are uh, studying waterfowl. And, uh, you know, we're talking about doing stuff like banding. And as of late, these uh, satellite tracking uh, kind of backpacks that birds are wearing uh, where where we are starting to really gather a lot of telemetry data and we're finding out stuff about the migratory patterns of waterfowl that we didn't know before. Uh, as I stated last week, this is going to be the second in a very, uh, waterfowl centric series of podcasts. It's, you know, we're outside of waterfowl season now. And so it's a great time to get access to folks that spend a lot of their time and energy pursuing those critters. Uh, and it's also going to be another podcast where we talk about some strongly held opinions in the realm of waterfowling. So fair warning on that. I don't think we're saying anything out of line here, but Again, we are, uh, we're presenting some opinions and, uh, you know, opinions are often like excuses. Everyone has them. They all stink. Yeah, I guess you could compare that to something else that my vice principal in high school used to say that all the, uh, kids in my school had as well. Anyway, I digress again. This is my conversation with case in short of Bill Byers Hunter club. Hope you enjoy it. 
All right, folks. Well, welcome back to the podcast. This week, uh, recording long time in the making. I am north of Brinkley, Arkansas, and I am at Bill Byers Hunter Club. He's uh, got a well-known presence in the waterfowling community uh, on Instagram. Lots to do with like uh, scientific-based waterfowl research as well. And I am uh, here in the lodge with Kaysen Short, the third generation. Uh, to run this farm and this lodge. And Kaysen, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. Glad to be here. Well, so we've been, as always happens on this podcast, because it's kind of hard to just start a recorded uh, conversation. We've been talking for a while. Uh, but, yeah, if we can, without losing too much momentum, I'd I'd love to kind of hear just about the history of this place. There's tons to talk about. We've got strong opinions on waterfowling. We've been kind of trying to figure out how to present those without sounding like know-it-alls. But, uh, yeah, this place is super interesting, and I'd, I'd love to hear just kind of about, like, how your grandfather started it because it's, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot involved in waterfowling in Arkansas that's, uh, you know, a, a lot of folks that, like, get into it for a, kind of a brief moment in time is, is like an economic, uh, is a way to like feed themselves economically, you know, kind of, uh, here, here, uh, for a moment and then gone like these kind of short lived outfitters. But I mean, are you guys getting close to a hundred years? We are, we're, we'll approach, uh, I guess next year will be 70 years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. In this spot. So, um, uh, I don't know any way to kind of keep this brief, but we'll, we'll get pretty far into it, I guess, if you want to. Yeah, there's no need to be brief on this. Well, I, I can nerd out and talk about stuff for a long Do time, it, man. too. So my family, uh, the Byers family, settled in Arkansas shortly before the Civil War. So we've been here longer than rice production. Uh, originally settled down at Lodge's Corner. Yep. Uh, founded one of the first churches down there. So my grandfather moved up here in the 40s. I want to say maybe late 40s. Hey, Do you know where they came from before Arkansas? Uh, yeah, Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Yep. Yep. And I think at that time, Arkansas, the population was so low and the tax base was so low that they were giving land away to settlers. And I want to say it may have had something to do, uh, the, the, the matriarch of the family brought them here. The husband had passed away and I don't know if maybe there was more incentive because of that, because she was single, but they, anyway, they, they gave them. I think like 40 acres to start a homestead on. And that's what, what brought them to Arkansas from Alabama. Okay. Um, so he fast forward number of years, moves up here in the forties and starts sharecropping and was always, I think going the way of, of farming. Like he wanted a place for his own, but it really started out early on. He started buying ground right here in 1953. Um, he had a partner early on and it eventually bought him out, but they started with 1800 acres is what he bought. And it was all green timber. Um, and he, he had seen what commercial duck hunting was doing in around Lodge's corner where he came from. He knew the, the economic value of that and used that to pay his note. That's how he paid for the ground that he originally that he, that he bought. And, uh, I know at one point he talked to me about a lot of the land he was paying the taxes on, you know, the hunter was originally a timber community. There wasn't a lot of agriculture here at the time. So the timber money had kind of moved on and moved away from the community. And there were people that just owed taxes, you know, delinquent on their taxes. You could go in and pay the taxes on it and take ownership of the land. Mm -hmm. So at one point he had told me he basically felt like he could have bought the entire county if he wanted to. Of course, as a, you know, eight, nine-year-old boy, I'm like, man, why didn't you do that? You know, and he, 
tried to explain to me, he's like, I didn't think I could pay for what I'd already committed to, you know, and at that point in the fifties, that was a lot different world than, than what we live in sure. now. So buys the initial land, um, and, and the building right here behind us, it's all tied together now, but this one little small room here behind us, he would run a hundred people a day through that building and he charged $10 a head to duck hunt. A hundred people a day, hundred people a day. Wow. Yep. And you have to think about that when we talk about conservation and when we talk about, you know, party hunting and these big groups and stuff. Now that's on 1800 acres and it's green timber. So the pressure is a little different than trying to stack a hundred people on 1800 acres of farmland, but still that's a lot of pressure on a resource. Sure. And in today's world, there's no way that 1800 acres would support that kind of pressure. The, the resource wouldn't tolerate it. So just, that's a, a good example of how different the world was just 70 years ago. Um, so anyway, uh, it continued to do that. And I, at early, I want to say 62, Arkansas went to a two duck limit, 20 day season, which as we mentioned, you know, mallards in the woods, that was a one duck limit for us. We weren't really killing any uh, gray ducks or any other species. So that kind of catapulted him into farming. Um, I think he was probably always going to go that direction, was working towards that anyway, but that really accelerated that process in clearing the land and putting it into production. So fast forward to where we are now, it's, uh, we own a little over 3,000 acres here that he was able to buy before he passed away. Um, and we are trying to reforce some of it you know, the, it would be nice to just wave a magic wand and put it back like it was completely natural, untouched as much as you could. But our, our business has changed. It's agricultural, it's production, and it's just not as easy to, to walk away from that, uh, from a running operating business. Uh, I mean, do you consider yourself a farmer primarily? No, I don't. And I, I talk to people, um, my mother and I have that conversation a lot about her dad. Like, you know, he was a good farmer and he, this is really good, really productive rice ground. And he, we have a tailwater recovery system, which is, you hear and see a lot of those, especially down around Stuttgart where you have water issues where it's water is more expensive because of the depth of the water table. Um, but we catch about 90% of our own runoff. So he would joke, he, he used to tell me that we could wear the wet out of water. Um, we'll catch water that comes out of a field. It'll go into our tailwater recovery system. We can pick it up and use it somewhere else. Uh, in a dry year, like this year for ducks, we'll flood water early when we didn't catch any rain later. And they had kind of eaten all the food out of that field. We let that water out, picked it up, put it somewhere else to give them fresh food and fresh water mm -hmm. somewhere else. So, um, he was really kind of ahead of his time in that regard and being able to see how the land laid and knew, have the foresight to know that you could use that water over and over and over again and to know that you know in a year like this where diesel fuel you know farm fuel is now 360 370 going into the year you know water is a it's a commodity and in 1950 not many people thought of it that way so i say all that to say he was a very successful landowner and farmer but i don't think that's his legacy i think his legacy is what he did for the resource for conservation for ducks in general uh, particularly in this community i think a lot of that started he didn't start it right here. I don't mean to say that, but there's a couple of families in this area that were very, very paramount in kind of establishing the waterfowl community that surrounds us here in the surrounding miles. And he was one of those. Uh, when you're, when you're capturing, this is just kind of like a, 
nuts and bolts question. But when you're capturing that water and you're transferring it, so you've got waterfowl using it, you've got it sitting on that field. Are you transferring nutrients too, do you think? Yes, I, I, absolutely. Um, you'll see that. Um, you can see it in rice production. Our rice that is watered with relift water, which is water that we've picked up, mm -hmm. will yield better than rice that's watered with well water, which is you know ground table. Um, you can see it. You get uh, we get fish kills in the fall when that suspended nutrients enter. That you get you get a big rain in October, mm -hmm. and all that water, all that sediment enters that system, and the dissolved oxygen crashes because it's breaking down all that plant matter. You'll I mean, our crop will roll over. You'll kill tons of fish. So there's definitely, you can see it in rice production. There is nutrient in that water. I mean, just fertilizer runoff is suspended in it. Yeah. Um, so, and that's got to play a role, you know, especially, I mean, we're, this is March 10th right now. That has to play a role in the, the way that the invertebrate population is established. Um, we'll see it kind of early in the year, but it really, you know, from January on the ducks start feeding on invertebrates in that water. And I think that timetable is accelerated by using surface water versus if it were all groundwater, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, you know, that's something actually people don't talk very much about. Uh, and I've kind of been saying it to people for probably four or five years is that I think ducks <clears throat> mallards, you know, everyone's focused on mallards here in Arkansas, but ducks are consuming a lot more invertebrate matter than people realize, mm -hmm. you know, especially, I mean, I think this would probably be worth getting into since we're talking about the farming aspect and, uh, I get, you know, everyone that listens to this podcast is not like a duck aficionado. So it's probably worth mentioning that, uh, just real quick. So, uh, Arkansas is at the bottom of the Mississippi flyway for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Ducks have been coming here, uh, to winter largely because of, you know, just naturally, like maybe 75% of Arkansas would get some water on it in the winter, uh, especially over here in East Arkansas where it's so flat, right? That floats up seed matter. Uh, acorns is what a lot of people are thinking about, like red oak specifically, these small, uh, small uh, acorns. And that's like a nutrient-rich and calorically dense material for uh, waterfowl that have burned off a lot of body fat coming down here. So it's just like a way for them to put weight back on. Right. So then that, uh, that gets changed a little bit because ground starts to get cleared, but then, uh, the turn of the last century when they started really in like commercial rice production, like I believe it started right around Carlisle and then kind of expanded throughout the grand Prairie. But then that became, uh, we kind of like took out some of that natural habitat and then replaced it with this uh, really available agricultural habitat. And so that kind of helped proliferate uh, this idea of Arkansas as this duck capital of the world. Um, so just in case you didn't know that, that is kind of, there's always been ducks here. There's always been, this has always been a mallard centric flyway and wintering ground. And then with uh, the agricultural practices, that kind of, like helped it grow exponentially. I explain all of that because, uh, and I know that you know a lot about this cause I've heard podcasts that you're on, uh, where we talk about this or where you've talked about this. So, you know, a hundred years ago, or maybe 
yeah, say a hundred years ago, the way they used to harvest rice was they'd like get it all in these giant piles, right? In fields. Mm -hmm. And then mallards, I mean, I hear them talk about like mallards would come in and just, they'd be on these piles at night and like people would be out there just trying to keep them off. Right. Right. And so then, you know, uh, as I understand it, agriculture, farming of grains, like we're talking about cereal crops, this is, uh, this is a game of getting the best yield as far as like growing it. And then the best yield as far as harvesting it. Right. So you're constantly looking at an evolution of practices to get more, uh, recover more of that, uh, that end product. Right. So that means that the harvesting becomes more and more and more efficient. Now I'm going to, I'm going to throw some numbers out that I think I've heard you say, and you correct me, but I believe I heard you say on a podcast, the state of the waterfowl podcast with express boats that they've kind of determined that a, a duck will eat in a, in a harvested rice field, uh, until it's, until it's down to about, uh, like between 50, about 50 pounds of rice, uh, per square acre, because beyond that, it's too much of an expenditure of energy for the return they're getting like calorically. And that, you know, years past, there used to be hundreds of pounds of rice left per square acre. And now we've gotten so efficient with our methods that, you know, they're starting with like 70 pounds. Right. So you're talking about, you know, uh, a harvested rice field that might take weeks. It would sustain birds for weeks for them to dabble around in there and eat this uh, remnant rice. Now they can eat it out in in a night, right? That's correct. So we, we call that the give up threshold. And okay. it's, like you said, it's, it's the point where it is no longer beneficial to forage. They're expending more calories searching for food than they're taking in actually eating it. And in a perfect world from a producer standpoint, that, that combine and harvest will exit that field at basically the give up threshold. We're right there on the cusp of it. And there's a lot of things that come into play there. Um, modern farming equipment is so much more efficient than it was 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago. Um, and it's yield based as well. So you take a, a combine that operates, you know, at 98% efficiency. Well, if you're cutting 240 bushel per acre, bushel rice is roughly 45 pounds. Um, you're going to leave more grain at 98% obviously than you would if you're only cutting 160 bushel per acre. So there's some lead way there. Um, but rice production is really, the habitat in Arkansas has changed dramatically in the last 30 years, uh, as Louisiana has too. So when we talk about being on this end of the flyway and what's going on, the changes people are seeing, most of it, in my opinion, is habitat-based. A lot of people want to blame food plots or hot crops or things that happen north of us uh, in ways that people are, quote-unquote, improving habitat for ducks. And that has a lot to do with it in the sense that you've now got no-till farming in Illinois and other places, which I'll just slow down here. I'll forget which one we're talking about. So let's take no-till farming as an example. You've got a, a machine that exits a field, waste grain is left ground level, and it's not tilled again. They will come in the next spring with a drill that plants on top of the ground, and you never have to disturb it. So waste grain without soil contact or moisture will not germinate. Essentially it will lay there until something consumes it or it just rots on its own. Now you come south and due to our, you know, 
modern rice production, this kind of gets into what you were saying earlier, the old way of harvesting rice, they would put all these stacks of whole plants together and have to fight the birds off of it. Well, rice at that point was being harvested later in the year. When I was a kid 40 years ago, we were lucky. I always thought I was lucky if we were harvesting rice by my birthday at the end of September. I thought that was a really cool thing. Like for my birthday to harvest is one of the just really cool times of year, especially if you're in the farming community. Now, by the end of September, we're done with rice. We've been done with it. So we're talking 30 to 40 more days of warm weather now that that waste grain has an opportunity to germinate. Mm -hmm. And because we're harvesting earlier, we've got a better opportunity to come in and fall till. So we'll come in with a machine and start working down that rice stubble because that's the biggest hurdle to rice production is you've got to get rid of that residue, that stubble before the next year so you can plant your next crop. So you come in and you diss that field and now you've given that waste grain, you've given it soil contact, you've given it sunlight, you've got 40 more days of warm weather. And if you get any kind of moisture at all via hurricane or whatever else late in the fall, now that waste grain is germinating. So where we were right at the give up threshold when we left that field, now we've turned all that stuff under and it's germinated and there's very little grain left at all. And that gets to... Um, Gets to a further point, John Vion. I don't know if you've paid any attention to him. I heard <clears> him on some podcasts. Just super, super bright guy. I think he's headed out to California now to work on his doctorate. I could be wrong about that, but he's done some really good studies about duck energy days in Arkansas. And Arkansas as a whole right now is at a deficit of duck energy days, meaning that we don't have enough food to feed the birds that come here annually. And when you think about it like that, we are still getting this massive concentration of waterfowl but we can't feed them. There's not enough days to put back on their body what, what they've taken in their migration. And to me, like when you, when you hear that and you think about that, it's, it should ring a lot of alarms as a conservationist that we've got problems coming and you're seeing it now. You're, you know, I'm sure you've heard the last few years, you know, people always asking where are the ducks, why are they not coming here? Why are they not yeah. migrate like they used to? I've asked it. Yeah. 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 We all have. And it's, it's habitat. I mean, plain and simple, it's, we are not producing the food that, that we used to, and it's starting to show up. Uh, man, that's kind of a frightening, <laughs> like I felt something emotionally uh, reverberate in me when you said that. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that's, that's probably worth talking about because it's a, I don't even know if it's, it's not a secret at all. It's just kind of. Look, I know about duck hunting in Arkansas better than anywhere else, so I'll just talk about it here. So there is, to some degree, a divide between you know public land hunters and uh, and private land hunters, right? Right. Uh, and you know, I'll be honest about it. I was kind of anti-private land until I started getting to hunt it. So, uh, but that's not just about access to birds; it's also about as my understanding has grown. So we're talking about habitat, right? Uh, and like it or not, agricultural land, right? Ag land, privately held land, people that are farming for ducks, whatever. This is contributing a ton of food and ha habitat towards these migrating waterfowl, right? So you can't take that out of the equation. Now, really a lot of these problems come down to, you know, uh, people are mad that someone has access to something that they don't have. And that's just human nature. And like, we all understand that. Sure. Right? But, uh, 
but as far as you, you know, I, I think anyone who's can look beyond themselves just a little bit understands that if you have good private, uh, privately held habitat, right. Even if that private land is holding more birds than you, that as someone who's not getting to hunt that place would like, that's still contributing to the birds being in the, in the area. And it's, it's a net win for hunters in that space. Right. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you have good, healthy, publicly held, uh, habitat, you know, in the form of uh, moist soil units or, you know, these, these, uh, these flooded river bottoms, right. That's going to put, uh, food and habitat, uh, into an available resource for waterfowl. And that's going to contribute to people hunting on the, you know, stuff with more limited access, having more birds, right? So this stuff feeds each other. As far as I understand it, especially with migrating waterfowl, because of the way that the landscape has changed in the last hundred years, like that resource is incredibly reliant on agricultural land, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it does make me wonder and this might be too, this might be like too big of a question, but so you're a rice farmer, right? You got to make money doing that. Um, to do, to make the money that you need to make on that, you want this harvest to be as efficient as possible. So you're talking about all these things that like, as someone who is not a farmer, who's like my primary interest is being able to see and, uh, to see birds and be able to hunt birds, uh, how do we find that? How do we find that line? Because like you can't t you can't tell somebody that. Uh, well, I guess you can, but uh, no one's going to listen to you and tell them like you should not make a living, right? And so that I can hunt ducks. Mm -hmm. But like, if we are so reliant, and if that waterfowl is so reliant on that agricultural resource, uh, as far as like you know, replenishing themselves and being able to head into the breeding season in a good, healthy condition, like. Do you have any answers? I'm sure you're thinking about this stuff. Um, so I'm really glad you brought that up. There was, I saw an Instagram post uh, maybe last week and it was talking about the green tree issue in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And the question was, what's the one single biggest thing that we can do to preserve public duck hunting in Arkansas? And my comment was fix private habitat. And it's probably, probably not the most popular comment in the comment section that day, but the point was was pretty simple. I think I saw it on Delta Waterfowl a few weeks ago. Ninety eight, I think, it was ninety eight percent of all birds that are hatched in the prairie pothole region are hatched on private land. Something like ninety eight percent. And you think about that. That's that's a indicator of how valuable private land is to the resource. Now, I couldn't, I can't put a number on it specifically in Arkansas, but I have heard you know ninety percent or upwards of usable waterfowl habitat in the wintering ground down here is private. So when you think about that, we spend a lot of money, a lot of time and a lot of, of our breath talking about GTRs, public habitat, and what we can do to improve that. But the real crux of the situation is we have to fix the private habitat because that's the vast majority of what, fuels and what drives this resource now we can't let we can't let the trees die we can't lose what makes arkansas truly unique which is those green tree reservoirs mm -hmm. those those bottomland hardwoods that this whole area used to be 
but the, the conversation, and I've talked a little bit with our commissioner about it, uh, the head of the commission and a bunch of other friends, we've got to incentivize farmers to care about that resource, the waterfowl resource, because it's difficult to serve two masters. We do it, but we're really passionate about both. So we can make it make sense for us. But if you're only looking at your bottom dollar, there's not a lot of reasons to farm for ducks. So I say that to say, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about some of the places now that you can go hunt private, you know, for a few dollars a day, they've got some people that are enrolling that way, but we've got to find a way to monetarily make it make sense for a farmer to not till that field, because that's a good way to keep what race waste grain is on the ground to keep it from germinating. Um, if you wait later to roll your stubble or knock that stubble down, you're not putting sunlight to the ground without sunlight. You don't get as much germination. Um, and I think the rumor mill has it. There's some things in, in the works, uh, to try to incentivize farmers to, to leave some stuff, to hold water, um, right here in this community, the people around us. I mean, I can count pretty quickly. There's probably 10 to 15,000 acres that's not being flooded now that in 1988 was being flooded. And it wasn't necessarily being hunted. People just held water because that's what you what's what you did. You stopped the pipes up, you caught rainwater. And the mindset at that point was that that was a really good way to get rid of that residue. We do it that way. Um, in fact, if, if you wanted to walk out here in a minute, I could show you a field that was flooded early and rolled. The, the rice residue is gone. I mean, it looks like the surface of the moon. It's level, it's smooth, rice stubble is gone. Now, you take a field over here that's been worked and not had water held on it. And there's still some residue there, still some work required, but it's just kind of a mindset. Uh, farming practices change. People develop different opinions. So that's what we have to do. I think from a conservation standpoint, we have to maybe enlighten some people that there, there are incentives to holding water. And if we can incentivize uh, monetarily people to hold that water, now you're going to start seeing more usable habitat, more opportunities for hunters to find places to hunt. Imagine if overnight we could we could double the amount of flooded acres in the state of Arkansas alone. How much is the average cost of a lease going to go down when there's twice as much of a product dumped into an economy? It's it's going to have to decrease, which makes it more accessible. Do you think it would? You really think it would decrease? Well, competition is going to go down, right? I mean, you're no longer vying for that. I don't know. I mean. It, it, I think our, our my economics professor would claim that it would it would go down. It may not. I don't. Once you, I mean, it's hard I, to go backwards on anything. Yeah, but. I get what you're saying. I'd, I'd say in Arkansas, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know that necessarily would. I mean, because everything you're saying, are, I think they're cogent points, and it makes sense to me. I also know that just because of the marketing of Arkansas, sure, uh, people think that any field that has water on it is, you know, I mean, I guess it potentially is a place where you could hunt ducks. Uh, and I mean, I've, I've heard, I was just talking to a guy the other day, you know, talking about all these farmers that he works for, uh, especially like kind of in the area where we're at, where we're kind of halfway between Memphis and Little Rock, these large population centers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said that this farmer that, uh, or this landowner that he works for, uh, he said he charges top dollar to like all these, you know, sports as they call them <laughs> coming from the cities. And, uh, he won't he won't give him any water either. He uh because it you know, it cost him money to pump water. Right. And if a pump breaks or something, that costs a lot of money sure. to fix. So mm -hmm. uh he's still able to make some money just on 
their perception of there being ducks on that. Now, I do take your point about that maybe the lease prices would go down some. Uh, even if the lease, honestly, at this point, even if the lease prices didn't go down, if there was just more good ground, mm, with, more access, you know, with more potential for good yep. hunts, I think that would people would be all right with that trade off. Yeah, I mean, so how many guys do you know that struggle to even find a place to lease? Yeah, I mean, we've got some guys here that that uh, nearby us that this going on their second year now and struggle to even find a place to go. I mean, cost. I, I don't know. Maybe it's an issue for them. Maybe it's not. But I don't think they've even found a place. They found one last year, and they're right now working on a place for next year, and they're struggling to find a place to even mm -hmm. get their foot in the door. So, uh, I don't know. Anytime we can increase access to land, it's a positive because we're we're opening more habitat. You know, so if if it's new habitat and the birds can use it and it's huntable, then that's a it's a win win all the way around. I think. Yeah, I mean, you're also talking about uh, having having more places for birds to get a break. Sure. That's right. Uh, because they're not, we, we take those, those high traffic areas, these, you know, highly sought after fields in different areas. You, you've got them down around you and we've got them up here too. Those are the places that are going to get pressured extensively no matter what. Mm -hmm. So now if we've got some of these lesser known areas or fields that quote unquote, aren't that good for ducks, um, maybe that's one of those places that they're feeding at night. They're, they're nocturnal. No one really knows it. They're using that area. So, I don't know. Any acre of water that we can provide that maybe doesn't have a gun in it 24 hours a day is, is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, you got to think that it's a – you do have to think that it's hard to be a duck in Arkansas, man. Sure. Uh, I mean, I've, like, told people. I was like, just imagine every time you try to get something to eat. Yeah. You know, just someone was trying to get you. And we don't – so and we think about it a lot through that narrow window of just Arkansas – we we touched on it briefly a minute ago, the diet of ducks, and we didn't really get very far into explaining kind of how that diet shifts. Um, so I'll kind of, I'll put it out here. Think about it like our own diet, like carbohydrates, protein, and fat, right? Mm -hmm. we, we calories in those three sources. So probably the least desirable for us is carbohydrates. Like fat and protein is the two best ways to either build muscle or put on body fat, which is the two things that birds need. Right. So we I'll back up just a little bit. We released some GPS transmitters a few years ago on mallards. Uh, we've done some on white fronts and we've helped out with some different biologists and some studies that are going on there. But one of our mallard hens that came back with this transmitter gets to Arkansas just before season. She's living in some woods pretty close to us here and she's already night feeding before season comes in. So for the listeners that don't understand that, you can think about, you know, any kind of hunting, be it whitetail, elk. Seems like the older a whitetail gets, the more nocturnal they become, especially the bucks. Mm -hmm. They get used to pressure. They they learn how to survive, and they figure out that, hey, if I move at night, I don't get shot at. I don't encounter humans. Well, ducks are doing the same thing. So this mallard hen gets here, and she's coming in here and feeding in a field that we released her the year before. And she's feeding in the middle of the night, right? 2 a.m., she's sitting there eating. And this is a bean field that was cut in October and flooded immediately. So soybeans, when they're flooded, when it's fresh, is a really good food source. Uh, just like anything else, soy, it's high in protein. So ducks really like it. Now, the downside to soybeans is they sour really quickly. They just don't last very long in the water. So this field's been flooded for 
six, seven weeks at this point, pretty safe to say that there's no waste grain left. What was there is either eaten or rotted. So she's already eating protein in this form of invertebrates. And she's doing it in the middle of the night, and she's doing it the opening weekend of duck season, and she's already nocturnal. Now, why is that? It's not because she's been shot at in Arkansas for three weeks because the season just opened. But we view duck hunting so oftentimes through our little window as hunters. We look at it through either our lease, our farm, in my instance right here, or just statewide like Arkansas. What we don't think about is that that duck's been shot at since September. Mm -hmm. So when you start looking at how long the season is for these birds and how many times they see a gun, hear a duck call, or even hear a gun, the pressure on them is immense. Like it is tough to be a duck in the Mississippi Flyway. Period. Yeah, I mean they're they're starting to hunt them up north of the, you know, up in Saskatchewan, and then all the way down. And mm-hmm. that's kind of how the seasons work too. Like the seasons are earlier right. the further north you go, mm-hmm. so they're kind of opening as they as they come south. Uh, and that's what you see a lot too on you know opening weekend is you've got these birds that are kind of chilling. <clears throat> excuse me, chilling a little bit here in Arkansas. And then, you know, that first day you got a bunch of birds and that second day you start, you know, suddenly you see a few, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you see fewer birds and then go back out on Monday and it's like, man, where, what happened to all these birds I just saw? Right. Uh, yeah, no, these, these are all very cogent points. Um, well, man, you, you've mentioned them. You just mentioned them there with white fronts. So most of the, most of the folks, uh, they hear me talk about white fronted geese. That's going to be the proper name for what I call speckle bellies. Uh, and that's kind of like a colloquialism. But uh, it, it kind of seems like over here and like you in particular, like you were kind of on the speckle belly train well before like a lot of other people, right? Yeah, uh, potentially. Um, so that's really, I guess if I had a favorite bird, that would be it. Um, I can remember... I guess the first time I ever really got involved with research on white fronts would have been in the early nineties. Um, so my grandfather closer to Brinkley had a house and like 40 acres there and it was six foot cyclone fence around it, raised whitetail in it and it was kind of a little, you know, hobby project there, but he also, yeah. So that, so just, so I can explain to people, uh, so that's no longer, that's no longer legal in Arkansas, right? Like you can't, you can't have, can you can you raise whitetail like that? I don't even know. It's been so long since he had any or even flew it. I don't. It may not be anymore. I don't think you can anymore. Yeah, probably um, not with CWD and all the other fun yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. going on. Right. But so it was like forty. You said it was forty acres. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And this was so to kind of elaborate a little more. This was back before resident Canada geese were a huge issue. He was very instrumental or motivated to try to help. Or reestablish the Canada goose population in Arkansas. Little did he know that, meanwhile, the entire species was adapting and, and we're going to do it on their own anyway. So he had a, a brood house and raised Canada geese there in that pen. Um, a lot of them were, you know, pinion wing, flightless birds. Some of them mm-hmm. would fly. Uh, so he would go out and feed them every morning. Well, in the course of that, White Front started showing up and would fill that 40 acre fenced in pen completely full of White Fronts. And he loved it. Like he would feed them every morning. Uh, they would come in and it was really kind of a cool experience. Uh, I know you mentioned earlier that you had, you had a mount done of every goose from Arkansas, but until you add a brand to that list, 
you don't have them all because I've seen a brand in that pen. Have before. you really? Yeah, that's yeah. wild, man. Right? How, like when you when you think about that, but that's just kind of an indication of of the draw of that little space and what it had. So fast forward a little bit, we got to where you could you could pull up there and see net collars, color marked birds as they're referred mm-hmm. to. So before radio transmitters, before GPS transmitters. The only way that you could really study a bird in the field while it was alive was via a color marking. And on geese, that was a colored plastic neckband. Some of them early ones, uh, like that one up there, were aluminum, really, before they did the the plastic. But anyway, so you could see them in that pen. Um, and you'd see them periodically, you know, and it was really neat. As a hunter, you know, that's a huge trophy. People get really, really fired up about killing one of those. And it's a really cool thing to do. But we bumped into a grad student there one day. And he was sitting there with a spot and scope. And he was recording these numbers. He would read the three-digit code on those net collars and write it down, write the location, and would turn it in. And it would go up the food chain and become part of this study. Well, you know, as a young person at that time, I'm 10, 11 years old. Man, I want to do that. Like, we're here all the time anyway, seeing my grandfather helping feed the geese. Like, I'm going to start doing that. So we did. We started recording numbers, and we would keep a log all year long, date, time, you know. And uh, I forget how many numbers... But I think in the average year, you know, over 100 net collars, different combinations we would read on different birds. And this was a big study that was going on in white fronts at the time, mm-hmm. so they were more abundant than you see today. Um, but we got in touch with uh, the head biologist for the Canadian Wildlife Service that was running that study and exchanged notes with them. They sent us a bunch of stuff, you know, different areas where birds were being seen and spotted and, and recorded as they were alive. So, I don't know, I say all that to say, I got involved with white front research 30 years ago as a young child and they've really captivated my attention. When you look at before I was born you know, in the seventies, white front geese first came to Arkansas. And I remember my grandfather talking the first time he ever saw one, he had to go get, you know, a, a bird ID book out to figure out what it was. Sure, yeah, yeah. Know, nobody knew we didn't have social media, so we had no idea what it was. Um, and in the nineties, like in, in 91, I remember, really kind of first starting to see the big at that time what we considered big flocks in october you know they would show up in october every year similar to what they do now but at that point 10 to fifteen thousand birds through october was a was a lot of white fronts and now we will have on a good year somewhere around 150,000 white fronts in october and to put that in perspective they they adapt really well and they adapt to changing conditions uh Southwest Louisiana was ground zero for white front hunting for years and years and years. They, that's kind of where like the, that's kind of where the culture for it came out. That's of. right. Yep. And they, they, they came, the birds kind of followed rice production out of Texas through Louisiana and up into Arkansas. And that's kind of how their shift has happened to where it is today. But Southwest Louisiana used to winter that number of birds and they don't. And that's how we got involved with the study we're involved in now the biologist, the focus of his study was to see why the birds weren't coming to Louisiana anymore. What what it was that changed on the landscape, habitat-wise, pressure-wise, that caused them to no longer frequent that part of the state. Are you dealing with you dealing with Osborne? No, Paul Link on okay. that one. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we were sitting here one day with Paul. We'd we'd caught some birds and released them, and uh, he was kind of staring off into space. And I was like, "Man, what are you thinking, Paul? What's going on right now?" He's like, you know what I'm looking at? I'm like, no, I don't know. What, what? And he's like, I'm physically looking at on your farm more white fronts than the entire state of Louisiana will see at any point in time this year. 
And that really put it in perspective to me, especially when you think about the culture of speck hunting and what that is in Louisiana. And those birds have now changed and left. And fast forward to this year, the, uh, the white front numbers in Louisiana were horrifyingly low this year. They were low in Arkansas too. There's some three to 400,000 white fronts were missing in the midwinter survey for Arkansas and Louisiana. And those birds don't hide from airplanes. They don't, they're not like a mallard. You don't miss them in the woods. Like either, either they're somewhere else or they, or they don't exist. And that's a question for people smarter than me, but they're changing and they're changing at a really rapid rate. You're now seeing numbers. Um, Ducks Unlimited had a, an article out just this came out last week about top five places to go spec hunting. Yeah. Brent Birch was just talking about this. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was talking about Indiana. That's exactly where I was going, Indiana, yeah. right? So now we're seeing ten or 15,000 white fronts in Indiana, which is exactly where we were 30-some-odd years ago in Arkansas. So what's that, well, where are we going to be in 30 more years? If we, if we keep hunting them to no end and pressuring them like there's no end to what's going on, where is it going to end up? Like when to, I don't know. I guess I'm that passionate about them. Like I have to ask myself and I like hunting them. Don't get me wrong. Like a, a table fair. I don't, there may not be a better table fair species than, than speckle bellies. But I think as stewards of the land, we really need to ask ourselves is the length and duration of our se- of our season. Is it good for these birds? Is it good for this resource? I mean, is there an end to this? Can we wring every drop of blood out of it? Or is it time to wake up and be like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. You know, I kind of, uh, so I've seen a difference. I've seen a difference in just like the last four years Mm -hmm. with them. Right. Uh, I, you know, if we're being honest, I kind of suspect in Arkansas that we will, we will ring every last drop out of it. I mean, like we'll, I'll, I'll bring up the GTRs you were talking about, you know, like I've talked to biologists who will remain nameless, but you know, the state biologists knew 15 years ago that these GTRs were suffering, that we needed to get that water off of those trees back then. It was just an untenable thing in the public. Mm -hmm. And they knew they weren't going to be able to, they, they couldn't get it to happen and they still had to force it through this, not putting water on it in the same way. We had to lose thousands of acres of hardwoods to be able to make that happen. Right. Right. And so we're 15 years behind on that that fight you know um and nobody wants to have less of something sure that they've they've gotten used to having but you're basically alluding to is like we're going to have less of it anyway Mm -hmm. so you know personally for me i would rather have I, i would rather try and 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 manage it in a way that one showed some respect for the resource uh, and, and not this kind of this weird uh, abusive dominion over these animals where, uh, where, yeah, where we can just use them up. Uh, and then, and then all you have is the lamentations of what used to be. Right. Um, I mean, something people wouldn't even think about, and this is slightly off topic, but like, uh, you familiar with like a Carolina parakeet, mm-hmm. right? So like people don't know that there used to be an endemic parrot uh, in the Southern United States, like where we are right now, there would be, 
there would be roost with a thousand of these brightly colored parrots. Right. And we're talking like a hundred years ago, 150 years ago. uh, And they're all gone now. Like all of them are gone. They don't exist. They're completely extinct. Right. Same as like a passenger pigeon. Um, And I, I would argue that the world is less rich because of that. Right. I would, I would argue that the human experience is less rich because of that. Take, take hunting them out of the equation, right? And we've also noticed that, uh, or we should have learned at this point, that, you know, the interconnectedness of, of like kind of living things is such, on, on a scale that we can't even understand, that when something becomes diminished or goes away, other things are affected by that That's that right. we don't realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I understand there's a dichotomy here with, you know, you're listening to two people who, uh, you know, have their self-interest tied up in, you know, the, you know, I mean, just be frank with it, the killing of some of these birds, right? But it, it doesn't have to be without end and it doesn't have to be without consideration. Um, so like to stick with the white fronts, I, I know why I'm so enamored with them, but and you kind of just explained some of like your origins with it, but what is it about them in particular as a species that kind of has held your attention for the last three decades? Well, I guess beyond just their, their ability to adapt, uh, I guess single-handedly the vocalization, Mm -hmm. you know, when when you call out a mallard, they, they, they call great, they decoy great. And that's extremely rewarding as a hunter. Um, that's we all enjoy the challenge of hunting you know if it were simply about putting food on the table we would just raise cows and shoot them you know it's it's a challenge it's that you want to work for something um which i think kind of goes back to your your point just a minute ago about getting in front of some of this stuff like the more you work for something the better the reward it is so if we get out in front of this and work hard at preserving this resource then the reward of harvesting it is even better um if it were easy, if you just walked in the woods and killed your limited ducks every day, yeah, I mean, it would be fun. But I think the more you put into it, especially as a landowner, as a steward, the harder you work to preserve it, the more those rewards are. But back to my point about the vocalization, I think the thing that's really special about white fronts is that they will return that call that you communicate to them when you yodel to one, especially when you get them down in like singles and pairs later in the year, you hear them communicate back to you. And it's that connection between the two that I think just is completely unique to white Yeah, you fronts. can talk them all the way in. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I've actually got a buddy uh, who uh, I was telling you about him earlier. Like, he started an outfit and a really clever name. It's a uh, – so he's like a speckle belly guy. I moved up here from Louisiana to chase him, and uh, his outfit's called Call and Answer. Yeah. You know, because uh, answer is like the Latin uh, – the Latin – phrase for a goose and so he's he's referencing that call and response type mm-hmm. uh hunting style um yeah that's kind of what it is for me uh i mean one they're beautiful birds they're uh like we like we've talked about man they're top-notch table fare uh i mean i think you i think a, a just a well done just skin on uh speckle belly breast just prepared simply like seared uh, with a little pan sauce rivals any ribeye steak. Um, 
but yeah, the, they're so communicative. Uh, there is a, it's like what people like about turkey hunting, right? Like mm-hmm. there is an interaction with the species uh, that that I think really does kind of facilitate a like a love for them, sure. right? Um, and and they're beautiful, you know. Uh, they're just they're they're a beautiful bird. Uh, yeah, I love everything about them. I'll tell you what I really like too. And I was telling you how like just so preoccupied with geese I am and that so that means like specks primarily uh light geese as well you know snows and rosses and then more and more Canada's I've really kind of become fascinated with them but it's uh the difference in how they work so that waffling right that that flipping sideways and Mm -hmm. upside down and stuff is a way to drop altitude because they're so big they they can't just backpedal their way in the same way that a duck will if they're if they got like a lot of wind to contend with or they're coming in fast they've got to kind of flip upside down and what's i remember someone had to explain it to me before i could see it but when they do that you know their head always stays right side up yeah. just their body rotates and it's just such a wild thing to see um yeah i like everything about them uh what kind of a what kind of spec call do you blow uh, i actually make my own do you yeah are you just turning them, or are you cutting guts and everything? Guts and everything. Really? Yeah. Brass guts. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you, well, I'm not going to take a stab at anybody that's making duck calls and using other inserts. But, yeah, if you're not making the whole thing, you're not really making a call. That's fascinating, man. Uh, yeah, you know, I've I've been getting shopped up to do that stuff. Uh, that's right. We talk, I think we talked about that on, yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I've actually got a... Uh, you know who James Myers is? Yeah. Yeah. So like, we're okay. So we're going to just nerd out here on these <laughs> spec calls, but you know, so like, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, people figured out these PSO T twenties, right? Which is originally that, that gut system was used for several different calls. It was used for like a PSO deer bleat. It was used for, what is it? I think it's like the L 20, which is like the goose, which is like a Canada call. And then also uh, for a coyote fox call, like a predator call, right? And then people figured out you could just make some very slight modifications to that uh, wedge and reed setup, and you could blow it differently, and you could start to emulate these yodels and clucks uh, and some of these buzzes uh, that a speckle belly makes, right? Because I think a speckle belly makes more separate vocalizations than almost any other uh, species of waterfowl. Yeah. Uh, and so then people started taking those guts – and they started like turning uh, barrels and uh, tone board sleeves and like putting them together. And so like if you did that and you just change the material, right? So like something very traditional would be like boat arc or people call it hedge or Osage orange. That's a harder material than that original molded plastic. And so it's going to give you a different resonance feature. Uh, and you can also mess with, you know, you're, you're dealing with your, uh, your diameters, the amount of air, blah, blah, blah. Right. Uh, this is you can tell I spent a lot of time like getting nerdy on calls. Uh, <laughs> and then people started, uh, figuring out that, you know, so you are dealing with that gut system. I promise I won't go on for this too long, but that gut system is like a half inch. Right. And people started bumping up to like five eights, mm-hmm. right. The, the bigger that gets a little bit easier it is to blow. Right. You start getting these deeper sounds. Uh, and now people are even messing with like three quarter yeah. inch gut systems. Um, 
and then the, like like I said, the the material uh, will influence this, right? So, uh, like the harder the material, kind of the louder it'll get. That's why like lots of duck calls now are made out of acrylic. Um, but then, so like you're talking about, you're turning these uh, you're turning these tone boards out of brass, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously is very dense and very hard, right? Uh, so you're going to get a different different form of uh, resonance, and you don't have to go into all your particulars of like your di- gut diameter and stuff. But uh, are you? Let me just ask you this: Are you using uh, are you using like screw together tenons, or are you doing like friction fit or O ring fit? O rings. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, man. Before I get out of here, I need to take a look at one of those. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm I'm without revealing too many of my future plans, man. Like I, I intend to be doing some of this stuff. Uh, and yeah, I've kind of, I've, uh, kind of made it a quest of mine over the last year to just like talk to lots of people that know more than I do about it. Uh, especially cause call making is so, is so secretive, you know, uh, especially if people that make a living on it. Sure. You know? Yeah. Uh, and so I kind of, I've kind of like manipulated that a little bit by like writing stories about people and just like standing there and watching them. Yeah. And I'm not like stealing their secrets, but uh, you know, there's remarkably little information on the internet. Like I, I bet you one of the only things you couldn't find an instructional on, on the internet is how to cut down a old D2. Right. Like it doesn't exist. You know, I think the kind of the neat thing about our culture though, is a lot of people, you know, face to face are a lot more willing to share information. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, you well, they me. take your they they take your measure too, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's a really cool thing. Like the, the collection that's sitting here around the corner from us, like duck calls, particularly made in this area, are like a really cool folk art mm-hmm. for for me. Like I grew up around R and T's and Taylors, and they're just it's really cool. And it's a really cool form of artistry, and it, it really ties into that culture that we talk about. Um, there's so much more to duck hunting than just the ducks that you kill it's a it's a lifestyle it's a culture uh so anyway that's kind of where we got started on it um somebody asked you know why why we weren't making duck calls or why i wasn't making duck calls and the answer is pretty simple like there's a million great duck calls out there like we weren't going to reinvent the wheel mm-hmm. um but at the time um the r&t was still making their narrow read calls so like you know and which is a really if you've never blown one, you should try to find one. I don't know if they still make them or not, but really neat call and kind of serves a neat role now because everyone's gone to these these short read, you know, wider gut systems. You're talking about for spec calls. Yes, spec calls. Sorry. Yeah, so just so folks understand, the, the wider the diameter of like that gut system, the deeper sound it's going to make, which it's it's also consequently it's kind of easier to blow. Right. But And maybe I'm wrong in this, but I've, I was – uh, I was taught that the older a speckle belly gets, kind of the higher pitch its call will often get. Have you ever heard that? I've never heard that. That could very well be, but I've never, I've never heard that. But so, but either way, man, you, what you what you'd end up doing by using a more narrow gut system is you're giving them something different to hear, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, just something different than what they're hearing everywhere else. Sure. Currently, um, and to me, they're a little tougher to blow. Like once you really get a hold of it. Oh no, they are. Yeah. Yeah, it's very unique. Um, but anyway, at the time, that that's what R&T was putting out, and they were great. Uh, but we just kind of experimented and, and started fooling around with it. Got a lathe and enjoyed turning them and uh, got a little design going. I got a machine shop to cut them for us, and they mm-hmm. were – sounded really, really good. Now, there's a lot of people that are making great speckle calls now. And, sure. and there were then. Um, 
uh, early on in the 90s, I think it was maybe Backwoods Products out of El Dorado was one of the first, like, kind of commercially available speculate call, at least in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of where it's come. Speculate hunting has come, at least for us. Now, you've got the modified stuff and, and some other earlier cultural things, but we've gone from one commercially available call to now we're making them and, and you know, they're everywhere and there's some really good ones being made. But that's that whole sport of chasing them has really evolved in the last 30 to 40 years. Yeah. And kind of like, so the two big, I guess right now, like the two big populations of speckle belly geese are going to be like in this area and in kind of eastern Arkansas and then northern California, mm-hmm. right? Uh, have you hunted them in California before? No, I've not. I mean, I want to try and do that over there. Uh, and, you know, and I, there's just like some questions that I'd like to just go and experience and kind of get some answers to it. You know, like their limits astronomical compared to here it's mm-hmm. like 10 a day yeah. compared to two where we're at right now um and i don't know if that's just i don't know if that's because there's fewer people pursuing them if it's like more of a niche thing over there or if they've just got that many more or what uh have you ever been over there in like the central fly the central valley in california no i've not it's it's a wild thing to see as far as waterfowl i'm sure it's like like i was driving from the airport to this place that I was, uh, this thing for this black heritage hunt. It was like, I was kind of teaching and hunting there and, uh, just going across this highway coming out of, uh, where was that? Sacramento. There was, you're like driving across this marsh on this highway. And there were so many birds. Like I called my buddy, like it was, I felt emotional, man. It was, I bet you there was 50,000 ducks just yeah. mobbed up and like stuff you don't see in those sorts of numbers. Uh, here, I mean, just thousands and thousands of pintails, more pintails than I'd ever seen. Right. You know? Yeah. They get and then, there. uh, swans, mobs of swans and wow. crazy stuff. It was really neat. Um, well, so we've like kind of nerded out just on like the, <laughs> the bones of, of waterfowling and the science of a lot of this, but, uh, we spent some time before we started talking about, uh, Maybe some, you know, and maybe this is uh, us patting ourselves in the back too much, but like just some of our perceived uh, differences and how we're approaching waterfowling compared to, you know, uh, a lot of the rest of the culture, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to tee you up on this uh, and then kind of allow you to dig as much of a grave for yourself as you want, (laughs) right? But so I've, I've been somewhat public about this, but I'm not a fan of uh I'm not a fan of a, a lot of the public waterfowl culture. I think it's uh it's unnecessarily uh I don't know. I don't know what to say unnecessarily violent because like you're engaging in something that as I've said before is like snuffing out sentience. But there's a I don't know. There's just kind of an ickiness or like maybe a little bit. Uh, I think I said that in the last podcast, there's almost like a lack of class involved in it. Right. And some of this is like the language that we use uh, or that is used a lot. So you talk, people talk about like smashing up birds or banging up birds or really hammering them uh, or stacking them up. And, you know, that goes along with like pile pictures, which is, I'm not like, I'm not completely against pile pictures and I've been involved in some, but it's, uh, 
I do think there is a way that uh, waterfowling is presented uh, in like a digital age and on social media that is not demonstrable of some of this stuff we're talking about in this conversation, right? We're talking about being stewards of the environment, conservationist, like really having a love for these birds. Um, and then all of the intangible things that go along with it. Uh, you know, especially with, you know, this is, this is a waterfowling is access to a, a specifically American form of folk art, uh, as far as like decoy carving, as far as uh, making calls, we've talked about that a little bit. Uh, there's also a, I mean, I don't think you can get past the fact that, you know, even though like I'm a dadder, I'm a father to daughters and that's how I'm going to pass on hunting to, you know, the next generation of my family. This is something that is largely and historically has been passed, uh, passed from like father to son. Right. So, then you have all these kind of deep resonant stories that go along with that. Um, and I just, I don't want that stuff. I don't want all the beauty and the romance and everything else that goes along with this. Uh, as well as like the, for me personally, the emphasis on having some really beautiful and memorable meals and those being a way to get access to, you know, what I talk about a lot, which is like the stories because like no one would hunt, no one would really hunt without being able to tell the stories, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then having these mementos that uh, are really like a way to access the stories, right? Like there's a lot of beautiful mounts in here. Um, and we talked about it uh, a little bit before we started recording, right? But you're you're telling stories along with that. It's not, uh, this isn't some sort of like strange phallic representation. This is you saying like, I... I got that bird, you know, 30 years ago, or my grandpa got that bird or whatever these references are. So, uh, these are like points of contact. So, uh, I asked Brent Birch this, well, I'm going to ask you this one question and that I asked Brent and then I'm going to ask you another one, <laughs> but, uh, and I'd just be interested if there's a difference in the answer. Uh, if you, if you personally, if you could like, if there's a magic wand being waved and you could guarantee that, uh, waterfowling in Arkansas could continue for another hundred years, say, right? With uh, lots of birds and people having access to good hunts and like these successive generations, uh, you know, being able to go, go out and hunt. But to make that happen, you personally, you could never kill another duck or another goose. Would you make that deal? Yes. Yeah, Brent wouldn't, man. Brent said, no, man, I'm trying to hunt, <laughs> which I respect the answer, too, because it's yeah. a super honest one. Uh, yeah, I think I would make that deal. I, I think I would make that deal, too. Now, I would still want to go and uh, I'd still want to go and, like, look at birds a lot. Right. And hopefully I'd be able to, like, still call. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so to me that speaks to uh, – that speaks to kind of, like uh, – the intimacy of the relationship with these different species. So, uh, well, so I'll yeah, elaborate on ahead, that real please. quick. Cause, cause we mentioned him earlier when we we're talking, uh, Lee chose told me one time, he was like, man, he's like, I don't have to kill him anymore. He's like, I just have to see him mm. and I'll, I'll never forget him saying that. And, and I get it. Cause my, my father was the same way when I was a kid. Like he didn't need to pull the trigger. He's like, man, I've killed plenty. He's like watching, watching you hunt. He's like, that's good enough for me. 
and I see it now with my kids. That's why it's easy to say, yeah, I'd give it up. If it meant, if it meant ensuring that it wasn't going to change and it was going to be as good or better than it is now for the next hundred years. Yeah. I'd give it up. Yeah. Cause I, I don't need to kill them. I just need to see them. I think that's one of the reasons the study came out last year, with the Audubon society, you look at all the bird populations in the U S that are declining. The only thing that's actually steady or increasing is waterfowl. And why is that? We hunt them. You think it'd be less, right? But that's the thing I try to teach my kids. Like the reason these species are doing well is because the people that are hunting them are passionate about preserving them too. So yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I'd give it up. Yeah. And, and, and look, I understand, man, that is a strange uh, juxtaposition, mm. right? But that's also like the basis of the North American conservation model. Like the reason that we still have, you know, charismatic megafauna, the reason there's still bears and uh, elk, right? And pronghorn and white-tailed deer and mule deer and the like is because uh, people wanted to preserve those species, you know, not just out of love for the species, out of self-interest, like these were people that wanted to hunt. Uh, but, you know, you got to think about this, like we think of elk and black bear as like mountain animals, right? Right. Elk were largely plains animals, right? Black bears were largely uh animals that i mean lived in swamps and ranged across a variety of uh of habitat you know the most widely disseminated mammal in north america uh, pre-european contact was a mountain lion it was everywhere right mm -hmm. these remnant populations that survived were the ones that people couldn't get to to get all of them right and right. that's why you have like these these species up in the mountains right so uh yeah, I mean, I'm just, I just want to admit that I understand, like, because uh, there's people that listen to this podcast that don't hunt, that that is a strange uh, dichotomy. Uh, and even sometimes I even feel kind of weird about it, you know? Like, I remember trying to explain to my dad that, like, I, it's, I can't explain it. It's weird to spend so much time and so much effort pursuing something. And then ultimately, the way to possess it is to end its life. Hmm. But, like, to me, too, with, like, the food, man, that's a huge. That's a huge way to to participate in these very natural cycles because I do think that hunting is a is a supernatural human thing to do, uh, but you know like what I try and preach like whole bird usage, and uh, you know uh, doing more with them than just making poppers even though poppers are good you know uh, to me that's kind of a way to one simultaneously like place a lot of value on that animal and, and, you know, kind of show some respect to it, uh, and appreciate the fact that, you know, uh, this thing used to be alive and now it's not. And then, you know, you can, you can get real deep into, you know, the fact that you're transferring its energy and all that other stuff. But, uh, man, I would, I would ask you this question too. What is, cause yeah, we probably don't need to go all into like, this is what I don't like about popular <laughs> duck hunting, but what would you, What what sort of substantive change would you make to uh, to waterfowling culture that you think would have the would pay the most dividends if you could uh, change present or past? I mean, right <laughs> now we're dealing with what we can do now. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's that's tough. I don't. 
I don't know that at present there's one thing that you could do. I mean, I know we talk about our, our culture of hunting and passing it on. Um, I mentioned that a little bit briefly in a post today on Instagram. You know, for eons, we have been teaching the next generation to hunt. You know, we, uh, Jimbo says, you know, he, he hunts because he has to. Like, look at our teeth. You know, we're omnivores. Like, we're meat eaters, you mm-hmm. know. So, from caveman era, we've hunted animals, and, and we've taught our offspring to do that. And that's why that culture continues today. Um, so, I don't know what I would do today. Now, if I could back up 23 years, I would tell you what I would do. And we talk about it being the, the class of 99. We talk about the spinning wing decoy. Mm-hmm. For those that don't know, it's a motorized decoy that, that wing flash looks as realistic as anything ever did. And they came out in the late 90s. Um, right about the same time, we went to adaptive harvest management. We went to liberal seasons of six ducks in 60 days. And kind of right there in that same circle, you got social media. So you had three things there that happened within a span of three or four or five years. And it, it fundamentally changed our sport. And it was no one thing. Like, I'm not going to say, Oh, take away the spinners and things are going to be fine. No. I mean, they're here. They've been here. Um, and there are a lot of people that when they came out, you know, hunted over them the first time and realized like, this is wrong. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be this skilled at, at fooling birds. And, I mean, I remember the first day we hunted over them, like birds are, are lining up like planes at an airport to land, running in the back of the thing, knocking it down. You know, it just, it was too effective. But when you combine those three things, you had a, you had a tool that you could put in the hand of an unskilled hunter that suddenly made him skilled. He didn't have to be able to blow a duck call. He didn't have to know how to scout or where to go. He could simply walk out there, stick that in the ground. He could kill ducks. And then you've got these liberal seasons now. So you've got 60 days to go hunt. You can kill six birds. Opportunity is greater. The thrill is better because you can kill more. So you've got an unskilled hunter. You've got more opportunity. And now you've got social media. So now we're bragging about ducks, which is, look, we, we have pictures here, 50 years, 60, 70 year old pictures here celebrating the hunt. There's nothing wrong with taking a photograph that celebrates the hunt. That's how we hold on to those memories. That's why we mount birds. That's why we do all these things. But some of that distastefulness that we talk about, I think stems from the collaboration of those three things. We call it the class of 99 because you essentially, you introduced an entire class of duck hunters to duck hunting but they didn't get taught by their dad or their uncle or the guy down the street who took them under their wing and took them duck hunting. They just walked out one day and they became a duck hunter because they had the tool to make them successful and a platform to brag to everyone else about. And it changed duck hunting. We've got a whole generation of duck hunters now who don't know anything besides six ducks in 60 days and spinning wing decoys. They didn't grow up, you know, in, and Converse waders, the rubber Converse. They didn't grow up with that. They didn't grow up with their grandfather taking them, and and that's not their fault. And it doesn't make them doesn't make them bad for our sport. It doesn't make them a, a villain in any way. It just means that we've got to do a better job going forward of teaching people the culture of our sport, and that hunting, the experience of hunting, the 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 real reward of duck hunting is not necessarily if I can put my full limit on my stringer when I come out. It's that I enjoy that hunt, that I find value in that hunt. And that value is not always what I'm able to put on the table. 
like I mentioned before, one of my favorite hunts from a couple of years ago, um, my oldest son, he was five years old, killed his first duck. That was the only duck we killed that afternoon. And I, I wouldn't trade that hunt for anything. The value of that one bird and his face when he pulled that trigger is, I mean, it's tremendous. And it's in hanging on the wall in his room. Like, it's a true trophy for us. And it wasn't about everybody that was there killing their six. We just killed the one. So I guess if I could change anything currently, it would be to improve our culture. And to go back 20 years, I can see where I think, and some of my friends and other people in the in the industry think that culture found a way to erode a little bit. And it's no fault of any one thing or one person, but it was just kind of a perfect storm of situations there that, that allowed it to start. And I think that's where we have uh, these, these log picks, these pile picks, these buzzwords that irritate you and I. Like one of the ones that kills me is uh, – grind like people talk about that like oh man it's a grind today we really we're grinding on him like and i don't really know what it means like is it a grind like it's a it's a pain in your rear end because like if it's not fun you shouldn't be doing it and then on the flip side like if, you, if you're grinding on him was it like a meat grinder like is that a really tasteful way to describe our sport like that's just one of those words that really gets yeah me. i know i think that's so there's and this is probably this is we probably don't even have time to get in all this, but you know there's a there's a strange uh, there's a strange attempt to make uh, make waterfowling like this hyper masculine uh, activity, right? And so there's and I'd, I'd even say in some kind of outdated ideas about masculinity to where you just like grind and you wear yourself down, right? Uh, and you know what I have found is that I've got to I mean look this is this especially this past year I was gone from home more than I've ever been right like professionally I'm starting to like travel and just these things are happening right uh but just the idea of like grinding right like if if you look that word up I heard someone else talking about this like grinding means to wear something down right there's sure. less of it right mm -hmm. uh and but that can be damaging, right? Like uh, that's something I noticed this year really bad. That I have, I've like right now I'm actively taking steps about uh, trying to counteract because I I kind of lived so rough this season and just getting so worn down, man. I like got fat. I put a bunch of weight on, right? I was just like eating crummy food. Um, I was. I was exhausted in a way that I don't think let me be like the best husband and father that I was capable of being. Mm -hmm. And like, so for this next season, I'm really, I'm going into it thinking about that stuff and saying, I've got to have breaks here. I've got to just go back home right. and uh, not worry about these birds and take care of the stuff that, uh, you know, have the quiet moments that actually makes you a family, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I didn't, I didn't go after snows at all. And there's lots of other reasons I didn't go after snows this year. But part of that was, man, by the time I got to the end of January, like I need to be at home. Right. You know? Uh, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, just probably like any, anything else, man, like all things in balance is a good thing. Sure. Right. And when stuff starts getting out of balance, uh, it's worth, uh, paying attention to that and then trying to make some adjustments. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, w I would say that there, there maybe is right now publicly, there is an imbalance 
in how waterfowling is portrayed, you know, and, and to me, one of the ways to balance that out is like, who's involved in it. You know, like I don't want to go to a duck camp that has a rule that like no women are allowed. Right. Cause right. like I've got a kid who's about to be five years old and like, I want my daughter to be able to hunt. Yeah, with me. You know what I sure. mean? Uh, I don't want to go to a duck camp where, you know, it's like, just a good old boys club and like i personally feel uncomfortable there like just crazy stuff's gonna get said right right like i'm not saying obviously that's not everywhere but like if we're talking real talk there's enough of that 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 especially as we're dealing with hunting we're dealing with something that is diminishing as far as the number of people that participated in this country right if we want this stuff to continue I think we need uh, we need balance in it, and that means we need ethical and moral balance in it. We need a conservation-minded balance in it, and we need uh, we need to broaden who's involved in the activities so that uh, so that uh, successive generations can continue to experience this stuff. Because yeah. I mean, I'll tell you this right now, man. Like, uh, and I think I can very honestly say this is like uh hunting in general and specifically waterfowling has changed the course and tenor and quality of my life right it's not something that i grew up doing uh i came to it kind of accidentally and i've like devoted my entire life to it right now right yeah uh like my a large part of my identity is tied up in it right and i think for the better uh, of me, I think, uh, I've seen, I think it's better for my family. And now that I've, I have a family that like me and my wife are building and creating, right. Mm -hmm. It's influencing that. Like my kids relationship with the natural world and where their food comes from is categorically different than mine was growing up. Yeah. Right. And I think that will continue to pay dividends. Hopefully, you know, for as long as there's Wilkins, right? Mm -hmm. or my my strain of Wilkins, anyway. So, uh, anyway, yeah, man, it's hard to do these like waterfowl centric podcasts without getting on a little bit of a soapbox. Sure, uh, but I mean, if you didn't want to hear me on a soapbox, you probably wouldn't listen to this podcast at all. So, uh, well, hey, uh, Casey, man, I'm again, man, I so appreciate you letting me come by here and take a look at this place uh, and the conversation like and like we had a really long conversation on the phone maybe like a year ago yeah and i was so impressed man i was i told my uh, i told my wife i was like man that might be one of the one of the like the most intelligent sounding duck hunters i've ever talked to so <laughs> i'm glad that i'm glad you exist and that you're you have this profile and uh continuing this legacy and uh yeah man uh maybe uh Maybe the uh, next couple of seasons we'll get to do a hunt or something together, man. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk to your audience. It's, uh, you know, it, it's about passing it on. So I, I think anytime that you can, like you've done here, you, you develop an audience that you, you can talk to and we can, you know, spread duck hunting in a positive way, waterfowl, hunting in general. It doesn't have to be ducks. I mean, yeah. we need hunters in our in our country. We need people that are conservation-minded from that aspect. And anytime that uh, – like-minded folks and get together and, and talk stories and discuss it and maybe uh, bring someone else to our sport. That's a good thing. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 
folks thank you so much for listening to this episode of the black duck revival podcast as always it's produced by me jonathan wilkins and brian Sachs. also uh Another reminder that if you're interested in coming down for a catfish excursion, when I take you and a friend or a partner out for a couple of days in the backwaters and bayous of East Arkansas to run limb lines and trot lines for catfish, just go to the website, that's blackduckrevival.com, go to the experiences tab, and that'll take you to all the pertinent information. You can also get a hold of me there and we can figure out a time uh, for you to come and go catfishing. We'll have waterfowl dates out soon. And uh, also as I'm I'm usually kind of petitioning the audience, if you like this podcast, please tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an acquaintance. Uh, The more people that we can get listening to the podcast, the more opportunities it opens up. Uh, I will start traveling here in just a few short weeks and we will kind of move away from some of these Arkansas interviews and we'll be uh, getting some really cool and interesting people uh, on the West Coast and in the Western United States over there in Montana as well as I wind up there for BHA Rendezvous. So we will be diversifying who we're talking to and like I said, the more folks that we can get listening to that, uh, the easier it makes it for me to continue doing this. So, uh, I so appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for tuning in until next time.